Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we're continuing our series on the future of wine retail. And our guest is Phil Bernstein, general manager of MacArthur Beverages, which is a brick and mortar wine retailer in the DC area. Phil, welcome to the show. Hi guys. Thanks for having me. I was wondering if you give us a brief background of yourself and your experience in wine. Yeah, sure. Like most people in the wine industry, um, I just kind of ended up in it, which is what you'd probably find talking to most people in the wine business. But um, I grew up in the suburbs of Suffolk County and Long Island, New York, and took a liking to playing the trumpet at a very young age. And that was my thing. I ended up going to Indiana University, which is a you know, very good music school on a performance degree, trumpet performance degree. Graduated from there and then ended up doing a master's at University of Michigan, also in trumpet, and started freelancing and doing the orchestra audition circuit and trying to make it as a professional trumpet player, which is uh, very difficult. It's like trying to become a professional baseball player, except the money's nowhere near as good. And, um, you know, I was starting to get a little bit burnt out on it and kind of got interested in wine, was living in Ann Arbor at the time. So a new wine shop was opening up and uh, I just kind of wandered in there and gentleman who was kind of going to be in charge of wine, like, you know, I basically begged and pleaded, you know, give me a part-time job. I really want to learn about wine. And, and he was cool. And we ended up really clicking and um, he was kind of like my first mentor and like I always tell people that the best way to learn about wine is drinking it. So we ended up just tasting, tasting, tasting a, a lot of wines because it was a new store opening up. So we would get tons of samples and this and that. So there was a lot of stuff to learn, going a lot of trade tastings and this and that. So it ended up just being something that I just took to and really enjoyed being out on the floor uh, of a shop, interacting with customers, you know, recommending a bottle of wine to go with their pizza on Wednesday night or whatnot. And, um, you know, it's decided like, geez, you know, maybe I could make a career out of this. So job opened up in DC. I saw it on winejobs.com at Calvert Woodley, which is a um, good competitor of ours. Also in DC in the Van Ness area, you know, sent in an application and uh, ended up driving out there. What made it worthwhile is that my wife's family is from here. So She's also a musician and we could be kind of nomads and she was okay with, she loves this area, was okay with moving back here. So one thing led to another, got the job and moved to DC and um, quit playing the trumpet and went into doing wine full time. You know, loved working at Calvert Woodley. Ed and Michael Sands are, are really, really great people. They taught me a lot, learned a lot from them. And then a uh, job opened up over at MacArthur Beverages and the you know, I guess the attraction of that job is that you get to be a wine buyer. You know, at Calvert Woodley, there's one wine buyer and then all the other wine guys kind of work the floor, which is cool. But I wanted a little more of a challenge. So each person at MacArthur buys for their own areas. So I ended up going there and you know, was given a certain regions to buy for. Loved it and, you know, really learned about wine buying and this and that. And um, yeah, just kind of worked my way up at the company when my the general manager, Mark Wessels, decided to retire at a young age to uh, go farm Kona coffee, lucky guy, and moved to Hawaii. He tapped me for the job to replace him and um, just ended up, you know, the owners felt comfortable about keeping the new manager in-house and I had a good relationship with them and um, took over. I guess it was in 2018 now. Uh, it was April 2018. I took over as uh, general manager of the store, and here I am. So, 
So maybe you could give Robert and I a little more background on MacArthur Beverages. How did it start and what does it do today? Well, it's a destination store. It's an institution in D.C. It's located in the Palisades, which is a very nice suburb north of Georgetown near the reservoir. It was started by uh, Addie Basson in 1957 with his wife, Ruth. And he, Addie was a, a real pioneer. He was one of the first merchants to offer Bordeaux on Premier. He made a big splash in the Washington Post. We have the article hanging up in the store where he bid on one of the um, Lafitte Jefferson bottles. He was a um, real charismatic guy, really, really brilliant guy. And I think he saw that there was a real, you know, a lot of money to be made and a, and a lot of business to do in selling fine wine which not so many people were doing at that time. So he kind of specialized the store in fine wine. And, um, you know, he ran the store until 1986, where unfortunately he died from cancer. And after that, his son, Bruce Basson, who's another kind of legendary name in the wine business, took over, grew the business quite a bit. And then unfortunately, while he was waiting in line to board a flight at Dulles Airport to go over to France, he dropped out of a heart attack in 1998. So it was, of course, a shock to everyone. And um, that's a reason the store is heavily involved with fundraising for the American Heart Association, actually, the Heart's Delight wine event. So anyway, he passed and, you know, Mark Wessels took over. And through all that, Addie's wife, Ruth Basson, was the real matriarch of the store. She would be there every single day, you know, sitting up at the front counter, running a register, answering phones talking to all the customers. Uh, she was a real legend, and everyone at the store knew Mrs. Basson. And uh, unfortunately, she passed away in 2016. So now her daughters, uh, you know, Gail and Barbara, own the shop, and uh, I run the day-to-day operations. But uh, we're known on a national front, you know, because we do a lot of fine wine business, and we're also a neighborhood store at the same time. We have People that live in the neighborhood stopping by on their way home from work for a, you know, a good Cote de Rhone or a six pack of beer. And then the next customer you wait on might be buying a bottle of uh, 90 label Lascasse. It's pretty crazy. So we do it all. And it's a lot of fun. So you have the physical store, you have an online presence. How much of your business is online versus in store? I'd say pre-pandemic, it was probably, I'll say it was about 50-50 you know, post, I won't say post pandemic, but now I'd say it's almost 70, 30, 70 online, 70 online to probably 30 walk-in just because, you know, one big thing is Saturday would always be a real busy day because we would have tastings. We would have a tasting every Saturday and loyal people would show up, you know, the tastings are always one to four on Saturday. We'd also maybe have tastings on Thursday, Friday, something like that. And obviously that's going to draw a lot of people into the shop, but with the pandemic and everything, I really haven't felt comfortable with the big crowd of people. You know, we're not a huge store. We don't have a huge space for our tasting. And I haven't felt comfortable with 40 people in a spit bucket and this and that and just hasn't really made sense. And, you know, it doesn't seem responsible. So, you know, our definitely our, especially Saturday foot traffic is down a little bit. But what now people do a lot is order ahead of time. They do their curbside pickup order and have it all ready and, and come in and get it or we bring it out to the car. Is that a big part of your business? Quite a bit. Yes. Yes. Especially since the pandemic. I mean, I think people really, as I'm sure you've heard from other retailers, people really change the way they shop. And also we do a ton of uh, delivery just in the DC area. We've always done a lot of delivery, but when the pandemic hit and everybody was, of course, quarantined, our delivery was went up to an incredible amount. It's like a blur. There were some days where we were having over a hundred packages going out and we can only deliver in DC legally. We can't 
deliver into Virginia, Maryland, which of course in this area are neighboring suburbs and they call it the DMV, everything's lumped together, but legally we can only deliver inside the district. So the Maryland and Virginia people would just do a curbside pickup and come to the shop. Yeah, of course, we were also closed to the public as well. That sounds like a big barrier given the proximity of those three states to the district. Absolutely. If we could deliver into Virginia or Maryland, I'm sure we would do even a ton more business. But like I said, legally, we cannot. You know, being a destination store and being a place that maybe has stuff that people can't get other places. If they live in Montgomery County, Maryland, everything there, it's a little bit like Pennsylvania. It's county controlled. So the prices are much higher. So a lot of people come, you know, from Montgomery County to buy wine from us. Or in Northern Virginia, you have some good wine shops. But again, you don't have quite the same selection that you have in DC. So I'm amazed what some of our loyal customers will do to get their wine. They'll drive, you know, pretty good distances from you know, Eastern Maryland or Richmond area or whatever, a few times a year or more just to support us and, and get the good stuff. So very grateful for that. So we're seeing a lot of digitally native companies like Warby Parker get into the physical store space with retail stores. Do you think having a physical presence is an advantage for wine retail? Yeah, absolutely. Nothing beats the human touch, the ability to, to interact with your favorite wine merchant. You know, somebody might come in, all they're going to buy is a six pack of beer. And then all of a sudden you start talking to them and you say, hey, I got this new, new great uh, Cote de Ronin. You should try it. Okay, I'll take a bottle. So you get that plus sale. And of course, developing relationship with your customers and all that. Absolutely. It's still the best part of retail is uh, interacting with the customers in person. So your website mentions reliability and price are the two main reasons to buy from MacArthur's. How much do you think price is a factor in wine retail? Oh, it's huge. You know, sadly, many times that price is going to trump customer loyalty. And, you know, when it comes to a very expensive wine, I can't blame the customer. They might live two miles down the street, but they'll order from a shop in California, New Jersey, because they get a chip right to their door and they could save quite a bit of money. A lot of times they're not paying sales tax. So yeah, I'd certainly, especially for real expensive high-end wine, price is, is everything. And of course, you know, we benefit from that as well because we ship wine too to where we can. You know, it's we're always consciously when we're pricing wines, we're looking at Wine Searcher all the time. We used to do back in the old days, we would sort of mark up things a certain percentage, like a higher percentage. And then if somebody wanted a case, we give them a case discount. But then we started seeing that the wines were getting so expensive that it made sense just to put that best price on bottle one because people weren't really buying cases anymore and have the best price on Wine Searcher. And that would drive sales tremendously, especially on higher end wines. So it's a yeah, huge part of our business. So I'm curious on how you as a business actually leverage something like Wine Searcher or, or even the price checking through Vivino. Obviously, it's made price transparency a lot for savvy customers, you know, a lot easier to handle. But are you actively pricing your wines to like, hey, I know I'm going to be the best price for this nationally or regionally for these X number of wines. And those are going to be the ones that get them into the store and then they'll might buy other things. For sure. 100%. Whenever we're even thinking about buying a wine, a lot of the times, you know, if it's something we carry every year, that's one thing. But if it's a whether a wholesaler or a supplier overseas trying to get us to take a big drop of something, we'll always be checking Wine Searcher to see if it makes sense. If we're 15, 20, $50 a bottle higher on something, it just doesn't make sense because you're going to have 10 or 15 other stores ahead of you on Wine Searcher. And unless you get real lucky, it gets 100 points or something like that. It's you're going to have it for a while. So it's uh, 
tremendous part of our business. Absolutely. And I'm curious on, so the prices seems a little straightforward in that statement, but what does reliability mean and how does that influence wine purchasing? Well, reliability is to me, it's customer service. If someone buys from us, they know that we take good care of our wines, that you know we bring stuff over on our containers, on reefer temperature controlled containers. When they order something, we're not going to make vintage substitutions. If it's a you know, wine from a cellar. We're not going to buy a cellar that where the wines haven't been treated right and have low fills and this and that. We're presenting a product in the best way that we can. And we take good care, like I said, we take good care of our wines. If, you know, the odd circumstance where, where something goes wrong, you know, we got oversold on something or, you know, we got short on a supplier, bottle broke. I mean, all these things happen, unfortunately, in retail. We'll always make good on it. I think about a customer out on the West Coast. We had a problem with a overselling on a, a certain wine and, you know, he was not happy about it. I don't blame him. So I went and I ordered the wine for him from a retail store and had it shipped to him. And we, we lost money on the sale. But, you know, to me, it was more important that we kept that customer happy. And uh, he, even, <laughs> he even called me out on the wine berserkers board in a good way. So that's the kind of thing that we do that maybe some other stores wouldn't that, you know, really sets us apart and how we keep our customers loyal. Because, you know, to me, customer service is everything. You can't take any customer for granted. And there's every day, every day, more and more and more competition. And if you're not going out of your way to make your customers happy and offer them good product, then it's just a it's tough business. Robert finally got his line, I guess. And I found you from Wine Searcher because I was looking for something and you were one of the few places in the country that had it. And I was like, and I started looking up the other bottles on Wine Searcher from that same producer and you had multiples. I was like, sign me up. I was like, I had to make it a case in order to make the shipping cost effective to uh, California. Right. And you may have purchased it when it was too warm. That's another thing we'll do. And maybe a lot of other stores don't or they're not. I think a lot of fine wine stores do. But if you order a wine in June or July, we don't want to ship it to you because obviously wine is temperature sensitive. So we, we end up holding back a lot of wine and not shipping it until the weather cools down. So our, right now our shipping department is pulling their hair out, trying to get hundreds of boxes out of all these orders we've been holding over the summer. But, you know, that's, you know, another thing that we do because it's the right thing to do. You certainly don't want to be shipping someone's Bordeaux futures, you know, when it's 100 degrees out and sitting on the back of a UPS truck. So, yeah. So MacArthur is somewhat unique in that it's both an importer and a retailer, something that's only possible in California and D.C., at least today. Why is this important and how does it impact your business? Yeah, it's certainly one of the main things that gives us a competitive advantage and sets us apart. I'd say it's a two prong. You know, number one, we're I'll take, you know, Bordeaux, for example. We're able to buy the Bordeaux direct from the Negos and participate in on Premier and, and offer a large selection of Bordeaux, which if you had to buy from local wholesalers, you would not be able to be competitive price-wise with all the other big guys like Zaki's and whatnot. So there's that. And then the access to more, you know, fine wine from overseas and being able to get the hot stuff. And then, you know, of course, there's the other obvious thing where that if you cut out the middleman, it's a lot more profitable. So you have that. And then the other thing we have that's great is something we've been doing I'd say more in the last 10 years that we didn't do as much before is to go out and find our own, you know, wines to direct import that maybe aren't famous wines. But, you know, for example, we 
Uh, I went over to Salon de Loire in Angers eight, nine years ago with the idea to find a Sancerre to direct import. And uh, I spent seven hours of tasting Sancerres, which I don't really recommend you do. To, <laughs> I don't recommend that to anybody. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, I found one. And so we said, oh, let's see how it does. We brought in 50 cases and it, it sold out in a month. And I said, okay, you know, people really like the wine. It's a good price, $21.99 for a Sancerre. Most Sancerres, as you know, are 25 to 30. And we made money on it. So I said, okay, let's keep going with that. And you build that brand and the rest is history. We're now bringing in hundreds of cases of that Sancerre a year. Uh, same thing with producer in Sable called uh, Domaine de Pasquier that I found at the Rhone Festival in Avignon that I used to go to every year, looking forward to going back. But I found these guys. I, it was a tip from, you know, I was at a Gigondas producer's table who I knew. And I said, you know, I'm looking for a Cote de Rhone import. He said, you know, who should I talk to? And he pointed across the room and he said, you should go see those guys. I went over, tasted it. I said, wow, the wine's great. The price is a bargain. So we ended up bringing in these wines. The producers now have become friends. They've come over to do tastings and this and that. And most importantly is that the customers love them. It's something that basically only we have. Those are two examples. We do a few other things, but wines that you can direct import, be exclusive on. Now I have a great wine I can recommend that's $14.99 that I'm really confident about. And of course, it's still very profitable for us. So it's a win-win. So that is a huge part of our business and a huge advantage that we have for sure. So do you actually set up exclusivity with some of those ball producers you import or it's just that no one else is importing them? I'd say it's more like local exclusivity. Like, for example, that Cote de Rhone, you know, is available in New York, but their importer there doesn't buy some of the same wines that we do. And, you know, for something like that, I'm not too concerned if, you know, somebody in Chicago or, or L.A. is selling the wine because it's the local customers that are going to mostly be buying that wine. So I'd say usually I would try to have local exclusivity on it. And do you sell to other distributors or retailers the wines you import? No, we can't. Uh, legally, we're not allowed to do that. So everything we do six to seven full 50 foot containers a year. And that's all our wine. You know, we're not allowed to sell to restaurants or, or other wholesalers, anything like that. So yeah, it's just for us. We have an offsite warehouse uh, in Northeast DC that, you know, we have the containers go to and it's a large warehouse and we have, a, you know, we get a load from that warehouse up to the store every day. We're keeping our wine. So from the outside, we might look like kind of a small store, but we're bigger than you think because of the amount of inventory we have. And you mentioned that it's better margin for you, but sometimes your customers also get better pricing. Is that how you approach imports, that it's sort of splitting that extra margin between your customers and you? Absolutely, yes, for sure. I mean, like I said, it's a win-win if I can sell a Sancerre 3 4 $5 below what most Sancerres are and still make money on it so the customer's happy and we're happy. So yeah, that's definitely the key and the, the name of the game And if you're going to do that, for sure. So what percentage of your sales are direct import versus sort of through distribution? That's a good question. I'd say it's probably still maybe like 60% stuff we're buying from wholesalers to 40% import just because, you know, we sell liquor and beer. We sell quite a bit of liquor. And of course, that's all the liquor is coming through the um, local wholesalers. And then we also sell a lot of the popular brands of wine as well. And we buy a lot of fine wine from wholesalers too. Don't get me wrong. We do a lot of business with the local wholesale partners. So I would guesstimate, you know, somewhere like 60, 40, I think. 
So a lot of big chains like Total Wine and larger independents like KNL are also doing direct imports. How do you see this trend evolving and how do you see it impacting the wine retail space? Well, I think, you know, for the reasons we just discussed, anyone that's lucky enough to have the capital and the manpower would want to do it. Why would you not? You know, it's pretty basic business. If you can cut out the middleman and give yourself extra access to hot merchandise or just to have these things nobody else has, it's a huge advantage. So, yes, I mean, I haven't been in a total wine in quite some time, but I know that what they do is push a lot of their, you know, private labels, whether it's imports or I know they have some domestic private labels. I don't blame them. I would do the same thing because I'm sure they're making a lot more money on that stuff than they are in, you know, Kendall Jackson Chardonnay. So, you know, I think you'll maybe see it more and more. I think it's really tough for some of these small wholesalers to survive. So you may see more and more importers maybe selling direct, you know, just because the wholesalers maybe can't carry all the product that that these importers want. So I think you will see more and more direct stuff in the future, as much as allowed. I mean, there's still, in a lot of markets, the laws are still pretty prohibitive, I think, for our retail stores to do that. I think of a place like you know, New York and New Jersey. I know there's I know there's ways that stores sort of uh, do it, but it's still not really, really direct like we do. So the wholesalers are very powerful. <laughs> As you know, if we want to start talking about wine shipping or something, but the wholesalers are very powerful and there's only, I think, so much that would, I think, be feasibly allowed to go on as far as direct importing. So I'm curious, I know some importers here in California do things like they make requests of like Unfind Unfiltered, or I know Kermit does that. I know that k has some small batch whiskey bottlings that are only exclusive to them, you know, age and extra time that they've deemed. Do you do anything like that in terms of working with a producer to make something special for your store or is that, but still under their brand? We've done some store pick bourbons and stuff like that. I wish we could do more, to be honest, because that's a ridiculously hot category right now. God, I would love to get a barrel of Buffalo Trace or something like that. Um, I think every every retail store would, because the whole bourbon thing is crazy right now. And of course, all that stuff is still coming through a wholesaler. You're not directly buying a barrel of Eagle Rare from Buffalo Trace and they're shipping it direct to you. That's not happening. It's still being cleared through a, a local wholesaler. And I would assume it's the same way in California. Yeah, I was referring to more their international stuff, their scotches. Yeah. In the past, we've done some, via Bordeaux, we've bought some Armagnacs, some vintage dated Armagnacs in the past. We haven't done it as much recently. It's a very small kind of niche market. It's cool, and the Armagnacs are great. But of course, there's not quite the demand that there would be for bourbon. You know, you know, Cognac, Armagnac, and even malt scotch, I think, sort of lags behind the whole bourbon insanity right now. So. Speaking of Bordeaux, futures are a big part of MacArthur, yet there's some discussion that, including with our interview with Jane Anson on uh, Inside Bordeaux in episode 70, that Bordeaux and Premier may not be the best way to purchase anymore, and there isn't always a discount to buying in advance. I'm curious on, what's your take on futures for Bordeaux? Yeah, I wonder if she said that and was thinking also about the 2019 campaign, because that, I think, turned things upside down. I would have somewhat agreed with her, but then you had 2019, which was amazing. I don't know how else to put it. It was a real throwback for us. You know, the Bordelais were smart. They knew that nobody could come taste these wines for on Premier because of the pandemic, and that if they wanted to sell some wine, that they were going to have to bring the prices down. It also had a weak dollar, too, for the U.S. market. But anyway, you know, I think it was 
Ponte Cane came out early with a, with a low price and kind of set the tone and maybe Angelus as well. And then it was like off to the races, gangbusters. We had people buying, you know, Bordeaux futures who hadn't bought Bordeaux futures probably in 10, 15 years. Maybe the 2000 might've been the last vintage that they bought heavily on, but they said, oh, you know, Phil, I just, I can't resist getting a six pack of Mouton at this price or whatever. And it was pretty amazing. And, um, 2019 Bordeaux campaign was a tremendous success. So I think that's an example where if you have the right wine at the right price, it'll work and people will still be excited about it. I I really still think when it comes to fine wine, Bordeaux is king. It's still king. At least for me, it is. So then how are you going to follow that? Well, you have the 2020 campaign, which, you know, unfortunately the wines are good, but I'd have to call it right now somewhat of a dud because the Bordeaux had to get the prices back up somewhere between 19 and 18 and whether people were tapped out by 19 or or whatever the 20s i mean they still sold okay and i bought quite a bit of wine and i certainly don't mind owning it but it definitely wasn't anything like 19 so you know my take is that in most years i think on premier works for maybe about the top 50 wines 50 to 75 wines it doesn't make any sense to have petite chateau and all these little guys offering their wine on Premier, I don't get it. There's no reason for me to buy it. There's no reason for customers to buy it because once the wine's in bottle, you most likely be able to get it at the same price. So not to repeat myself, but I think on Premier still works if you have a vintage that people want and you have the wines at the right price because the only way it's going to work, the only way someone's going to buy you know, a six-pack of Mouton and have their money tied up is if they think, well, if I wait 18 months to two years, I'm not going to be able to get that wine. It's going to be sold out or the price will have gone up. And that's the way that it's supposed to work. And I think in a campaign like 19, that's absolutely the case. In a campaign like 16, where the wines are great too, we were still able to go out and buy most of the hot 2016 wines after they were released, basically at release price. So there it's an example, like, is it really... Why type your money? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm still hopeful for on Premier that it can still work, but I think it just it needs to be pared down a little bit. And it's it's really hard to have a successful campaign two, three years in a row. Because 18 was pretty good. We sold a fair amount of 18s. Of course, 19 was gangbusters. So it's really hard then to have a campaign like 20, where you have good wines, but no one's going to be jumping up and down when they've already spent a lot of money on 18 and especially 19. So you also started doing futures for California wines. And I'm curious on how does that work and what producers do you do that with? Unfortunately, that's something that probably we're getting more and more away from. What happened is basically in the, um, you know, the early eighties, Addy Basson had the, you know, the brilliant idea that he saw that California wine was growing and growing. And of course, this was before the internet and people really needed to be exposed to these wineries that they may have not had a chance to try or anything like that. So he set up what he called a barrel, you know, basically like a, a modeled after the um, Bordeaux on premier tasting where he would have many different California wine producers come and present barrel samples of their wines. So we had people like, you know, Randy Dunn, Ridge, Schaefer, all of these wines that are now household names would come out and show the wines. You know, Robert Parker used to come and do a kind of a private tasting after the event to get a chance to try these wines. So it was a really exciting thing, and it was really the only way to have access to these wines. You could buy, you know, Dunhowell Mountain as a future and come get it in a year and a half 
or two years, just like Bordeaux at a lower price. And uh, it worked really well. Then, of course, you've got the advent of the internet and, you know, mailing lists and this and that and wider distribution of these wines. And it kind of started to make less and less sense. And it became more, it still was a great event. We moved it to the, uh, the Mandarin Oriental Hotel and it was still a fantastic event. But it became a little more of a, you know, like kind of a social event, which isn't a bad thing at all. But as far as, you know, selling wine, it became sort of less and less. There really was less reason to buy these wines as futures. And then, you know, we were still going to do it again. But then, you know, of course, the pandemic hit and we canceled the event and we didn't feel comfortable doing it this year. So I suspect it will come back in a different form. You know, maybe we will do more stuff with Pinots and Syrahs and current vintage wines and sort of make it more of just a California wine tasting event instead of a barrel tasting event. And uh, I think people love that event, get customers all the time. You're going to have the barrel tasting again because it was it's a really well-run, great event. But I think we're going to change things up a little bit uh, when we do it again. Thinking about your customer base a little, what are the demographics of your customers? I'd say males... 45 to 54, you know, is our largest demographic as far as revenue. But I was looking at our Google Analytics and this and that. We've actually seen an increase in younger, uh, 35 to 44 female buyers more recently. Interesting that the younger buyers tend to be female, which is great news. Absolutely. And I think a lot of that's because we're doing a lot of social media stuff and targeting younger demographics. So I'm guessing that's the reason. So it's fantastic. The wine industry for so many years was such a guy thing, so male-dominated. And what's really cool to, to have women come in that are interested in wine and collecting wine. And Plus, I've always said that I think women have much better palates than men. <laughs> I think it's, I, I, there's no doubt in my mind. <laughs> so, and uh and they tend to buy less by points and by names and more just they know what they want. They know what they like and they want to take a recommendation and learn. So it's definitely been a, a great trend for sure. So outside of that trend, have there been other changes in buying patterns over the last few years or maybe even what they've been buying? Yeah, for sure. You know, the old model, even when I started working in wine retail, which I guess was back in 03, it was basically a lot of people would buy by the case, you know, give me a case of that, give me a case of that, because, you know, let's face it, the wines were a lot cheaper. So it made sense. Of course, wine prices went up and then you also had much more diversity of selection. You can go into my shop and get a wine from Spain, a wine from Macedonia, a wine from Greece, a wine from France. So I think you get what um, one of my shipping guys calls a, a Lawrence Welk order. I don't know if you guys know Lawrence Welk is a one and a two. And he, it was an old show in the 50s. So, you know, you get, well, give me one of this, give me two of that, give me three of that. So they're trying things from all over the place instead of just, you know, uh, I want a case of this because it got, you know, 92 points in the wine advocate and it cost 15 bucks. Give me a case of that. I want, there's a lot less of that. When I first started in retail, it was like, points and price, boom, that was the big thing. And and now it's, uh, the points are less important. People want to try different things from different countries. And it's interesting. Yeah, it certainly has, things have changed a lot, even in my relatively short tenure in the wine business. So with new communication technology being developed all the time, what trends have you seen and what is the most effective way to communicate with your customers? I'd say email is still the core of our online sales. We're always trying to encourage customers to join our email list. 
you know, that's still the number one way uh, to sell wine other than somebody coming in is to, to do an email blast. A good wine at a good price um, still sells like crazy. Still absolutely the best way. Social media, we've been doing more and more and more. The nice thing with social media is we can kind of do things a little bit different. We can highlight boutique items like sake, rare whiskey, and sherry, and then sort of do a link to that and try to catch somebody. And well, catch somebody is the right word, but try to maybe have somebody click that, you know, oh, what's that? You know, uh, here's a picture of like a bunch of malt whiskeys from a store I never heard of or something like that on Facebook or Instagram. Social media has been pretty neat for that. You know, it's also good for promoting, you know, local events like tastings and wine dinners, which of course we were doing more pre-pandemic. And then of course, YouTube, we should do more. Going back to Bordeaux, we were sent for En Premier, and since we couldn't go taste, we were sent samples from the Chateau of 19s and, and 20s. And I ended up doing some you know, video tastings for our customers of, you know, here I am, I'm tasting a flight of wines, you know, the Gras de Rose is great, you know, the label Bartome, this is a great vintage for them. Had the glass in my hand, was swirling it around and all that. I kind of thought to myself, God, who's going to watch this? And the feedback I got was from customers was tremendous. I couldn't believe many people watched it, which was flattering and also surprising. So um, video is also, you know, video content. We need to do more of it. I think it's an excellent marketing tool as well. And, um, you know, the more just you engage with people, the better. Yeah, I'm curious on, obviously, if you write a really good email that pros in terms of capturing someone's like making them want to try something. It's, it's different if you're like, hey, this is like a really good value. Like this is super high quality for 20 bucks. You're kind of playing on one narrative and it, or if it's a classic it's like an offer for the premiere that makes totally makes sense like the 2019 they probably sold themselves but how do you get someone to like try something new like a sherry or, or things that maybe outside of the us wine geeks love but might be out of the palette of the average person who's maybe a classic bordeaux buyer like how do you get them to try something else is that an email is that social media is that a video like what's the tool to like get people to like consider buying this yeah i think the easiest way is to have that person in front of you of course inside the shop that's where you're really going to you know, engage that customer. But of course, we can't always do that. So yes, we definitely do some emails on lesser known wines with a story or, or some kind of something interesting about the wine to really grab their interest and branch out a little bit, you know, maybe get out of their comfort zone a little bit. It's certainly a challenge. Even people are scared to get out of their. I always think of German Riesling as a passion of mine. And, uh, it's really hard to get people to try German Riesling. Oh, it's been hard ever since I've been working in wine. And once people try them, they usually love them. But to get people out of this thing like, oh, that wine is, that's just sweet wine, or that's what my parents drank, or, or this and that, you know, I don't like things that are sweet. I only like dry wines, which a lot of times they think they like dry wines, but they really don't. That's another story. But to get people out of their comfort zone is still definitely a, a challenge. You know, I mean, I, I think... Social media can be great for that. If you have somebody post a picture, whether it's a quote unquote influencer or, or something like that, and then somebody sees that, especially with younger buyers and, oh, I want to try that. That's where actually I think restaurants and good restaurant sommeliers is, is tremendous because a lot of times people will come to us and the restaurant person has actually gotten them to get out of their comfort zone. And they went out to, you know, for their anniversary or something, and they were probably going to order a a California Cabernet, 
And the person at the restaurant talked them into Valtellina wine or something, for example. And they loved it. And so, ooh, you know, let me come in. And then they look online and they do a search and they see uh, that we have 14 different wines from Valtellina. So let's give that a shot. You know, let's come in or let's order some stuff. And it goes from there. So I think, you know, with the younger buyers, it's just them getting exposed to these things, whether it's at a wine bar or a restaurant or a recommendation or somebody online. That to me is where you're going to uh, get people to try new things. With all the new technology, marketing tools, events, like you're changing the barrel tasting, what do you think going forward, especially as we get back to in-person things and but we have all this technology available for hybrid events or whatnot. Do you see any things emerging that you want to take advantage of that you think will be really good for wine retail? Well, I think we're doing that now because, you know, we're working with a, a digital marketing company. We started that actually during the pandemic at the suggestion of uh, one of the store owners. And it was a great idea. We're really trying to have a, a large social media presence. I'm still not convinced right now that social media leads to sales, but I think eventually it will. And if you're not doing it, you're going to be left in the dust per se. So I think more and more, you know, digital marketing, targeted marketing, stuff like that, you know, is what we're actually working on building a new website. That's going to be a lot more, I think, conducive to that. What I want is you go on a webpage and I want my webpage to know that you're interested in Jura wines, for example, and you're going to get recommendations for Jura wines instead of maybe something you're not interested in, you know, basic stuff like that, kind of like what Amazon already has been doing for years. But, you know, I think just keeping up with technology and digital marketing and, and just keep going that route and still, you know, doing the old email blasts and all that. It'll be interesting to see what happens as the pandemic becomes less and less relevant to see how people, if they come back to the way it was before, which is coming in and droves on Saturdays and tasting, or are they going to keep, you know, just ordering online and having stuff delivered and doing curbside pickup? I just don't know. Yeah. It'd be interesting how the buying behaviors change as uh, normalcy returns. To wrap up the episode, what excites you most about the world of wine in the coming year? Well, I don't know if excites the right word, but like I was just saying, I'm, I'm curious to see did the pandemic change buying habits permanently or are we going to go back to where we were before? I think about like um, a lot of the orders we were getting during the pandemic, for example, were for like mixology ingredients. So of course people weren't going out to bars. So they were making cocktails at home and, you know, I actually had a customer slash friend come in yesterday and he's joined some kind of cocktail of the month club where you go out and source. Uh, he was looking for, I think, apple brandy or something like that, where you then you get five different cocktail recipes and you make all these cocktails at home and all that, you know, stuff like that. Is that going to keep going or are people going to go back to, ah, I'm just going to go out to the bar and get a drink, you know? And, you know, same thing with fine wine. Are people now going to less and less want to go out to restaurants and instead cook at home and enjoy that expensive bottle of wine at home? It's be interesting to see where we're heading. I personally think it maybe will be kind of a mix of both. I think people still love going out to restaurants, myself included. And I think obviously the biggest tragedy of this whole pandemic is what's happened to the restaurant industry and the hit that they took. And I'm glad to see them coming back. But I think we'll get sort of a hybrid. I think there's still going to be you know, a lot of people that you know, got used to 
doing things at home and, and want to continue with that. Or maybe they're, you know, they're going to get meals to go and cook them at home and, and drink and buy wine from me and drink it at home. I don't know. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. You know, certainly the pandemic, we've been very fortunate as far as sales go. And, and it's been great. And who knows? Yeah, it's a whole new world and uh, that we're yeah. all going into. Phil, we want to thank you for joining us and educating us on uh, MacArthur Beverages. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to, at some point, being able to meet in person. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.